Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Feels Like the First Time, was a special show in partnership with Up North Pride. This show, which kicked off Pride Week in 2019, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan. Stick around after the stories for a chat with Up North Pride founders Johnny Cameron and Elon Cameron. In our first story, Kate Rose realizes she's falling for her best friend, but does her friend feel the same? So, in 1999, I was 14 years old, and I was a freshman in high school, and I played percussion in the marching band. And, band nerds, I see you. And there was this girl, and she was a little older than me. She was on the homecoming court. She was drum major. She was a big deal. And so I was really drawn to this girl. And so one day after state championships, I walk up to her, and I was like, hey, hey, do you, do you want to go watch some bands? You know, not my best line. But she agreed, and so we went all the way to the top of the Pontiac Silverdome in the bleachers, and we ended up talking for hours that day, and I was just feeling really connected to this person, so we became fast friends. And, you know, like, like friends do, uh, you know, when she would, uh, when, you know, she'd break up with a guy and she'd come to me and crying and, you know, I'd make her laugh and we'd get back on our feet and we'd get through relationships and, you know, what life had to hand us, you know, just friends. And so when she graduated, I had a really hard time uh, with that and uh, I got her a Build-A-Bear. Uh, I got her a, oh yeah. Uh, wooden jewelry box with like a hand-painted moon I, and I wrote her a long letter that was one of those anagram things with the first letter of her name and you know we were good friends good friends so as happens with childhood friendships when we went off to college we lost track of each other a little bit but we you know we stayed in touch um, and because we were friends we went on trips just you know her and I through like Spain France and Italy um, <laughs> And uh, we also took a road trip from Seattle to Canada, and we called it Vancouver's. Uh, just her and I. So, and I promise you, nothing happened on those trips because I was so oblivious and so far back in the closet. I was just like, e like back there with ET and the stuffed animals, just like. That began to change when I moved out to California. Forgive the cliche, but I started to be surrounded by queer community that really supported me. And so, you know, just like these, these queer moments kind of coming up for me. Uh, I'm out dancing one night in the Castro district for a friend's birthday, just at this club, the Badlands, if you know it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, just dancing, and I, I walk up to these two guys, and, and uh, I'm just like, you know, just like country bumpkin from the Midwest in a big city, like, is it always like this? Just like, <laughs> right. And this guy stops dancing. He looks me right up and down and he goes, of course, honey, but your bars are two blocks that way. 
And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Don't, I don't know what you mean. I, my bars, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. So the wheels are turning. And then after like some dark nights of the soul, binging on the L word, and just, I'm like, oh, oh, got it, got it, got it. And so I'm still in touch with this girl. And she is in graduate school in Vermont. And so me being newly out, I'm like, what's the best idea right now? Uh, I'm going to move. I'm going to take a work assignment in Nairobi, Kenya, right? Adjacent to Uganda, which like, respect, but like one of the most homophobic places on the planet. So awesome idea, Kate. Awesome idea. But. I really wanted to do this, so I, I went and I uh, did the assignment, and like I said, this girl was in Vermont, we're still, um, we're still in touch, and the wheels are starting to turn for me, and as some of you know, when you come out, you kind of re-examine every relationship you've had in your life, and so it was just really starting to be like, oh, that made Build-A-Bear, God, okay. <sighs> right, so. Uh, but I'm in Kenya. I'm in Kenya. She's in Vermont. So most of our communication is like over Skype or texting. And she's uh, also kind of going through the same thing. Starting to come out. Starting to text me about crushes she has on straight girls. Starting to, and I'm sharing my like menagerie of terrible haircuts with her. <laughs> and she's talking about, uh, you know, what she, she's like, what do you think my dad would think of all this? Because we lost him while she was in college, and so I knew him, so we, you know, we went back, way back. So um, I told her stories of coming out to my family at the Cheesecake Factory in Las Vegas, which is true story for another time. <laughs> true story. Uh, and then one day she texts me out of the blue, and she just says, I'm sitting here thinking how much you mean to me, and I want you to know that. And I'm kind of like, the build a bear though, <laughs> thank you. And I'm kind of like, well, what do I do with this? I'm in Kenya, you're in Vermont, well, how do we, what? And I'm thinking, I'm also making all this up in my head, I'm reading into it, right? Because I think we've all been there. We've got a fr your close friend and you're like, I don't know, could we, should we? Not sure. So I'm like bugging out, but I'm gonna be home for Christmas and I know this girl is gonna be there too. So I get home, I'm all excited, I'm just like, what do I wear, what do I do with my hands, what's going on? And uh, so I get home and find out she went to Austin to see her brother for Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> so I am like the most just like emo, down, you know, just like, man, I'm never going to find out about this girl. But my parents have a great idea to cheer me up. We were, we're going to go to a concert. We're going to go to um, Manhattan Transfer. <laughs> Get some laughs. If you don't know Manhattan Transfer, it's just like a holiday acapella group, kind of like middle-aged, like kind of doo-wop <laughs> situation. So I'm like, awesome, cool. So we, we, we get, and I'm just like, we get in the car, we drive to the Palace of Auburn Hills, and on the way I'm like, why would an acapella group sell a stadium show? But again, I'm so in my feelings, and I'm like, whatever. So we get there, and I'm also looking around the crowd, I'm like, there's more Alice Cooper and like Slipknot types than like holiday families, but whatever, it's fine. So I'm dis dismissing all these things. So I'm there with my sister, my mom, and my dad. And the curtains are closed, and the bells, uh, you know, the music starts, and it's just like Carol of the Bells. So it's like ding, da, ding, 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 ding. It's like, oh, this is okay. I can get over my stuff. Like a nice family moment. Cool. Curtains open, 
It's like squealing guitar riffs, pyrotechnics. It's not Manhattan Transfer, it's Mannheim Steamroller. <laughs> and the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And just to, a little different. And to, to bring y'all up to speed, uh, if you don't know them, I just like, you know, picture like Ozzy Osbourne playing like a heavy metal rendition of Silent Night and then like lighting a dove on fire <laughs> just at the end of it, right? So I'm looking at my sister like, what is this? <laughs> my mom leans over and I swear to God, she goes, I didn't know that this is what this was gonna be. <laughs> Look over at my dad. Dad's loving it. Having the best time of his life. He's loving it. I look down at my phone. It's a text from the girl. She says, it's hard to surprise you without a car, but I'm in Detroit. And she sends me the place she's gonna be, right? So I'm like, time to abbreviate this holiday family jamboree. <laughs> Wrap it up. Somehow I convince my family to get out of there. Like, we were dragging my dad, like, kicking and screaming. This is like the, the first family, ex family uh, outing that he's been, like, all, all in. But we get home, and I remember I'm home from Nairobi, so I don't have a car, so I'm, like, asking my parents to borrow. So I'm like, Dad, can I have the car keys so I can go talk to this girl? And so he doesn't, he, he knows the girl because she's been, been in my life for a while, but I don't tell him anything because I'm still like in internal struggle here and I don't know what's going on here, but I am on fire. So he gives me the car keys. I am blasting through stoplights <laughs> to get to this motel. I drive up and I text her. I said, go outside. And she thinks I'm kidding because always, we're always just like messing around. She's like, yeah, right. I'm like, no, try me. So she comes outside. And I'm not gonna lie, she's looking a little rough. <laughs> she's been, in, in fairness, in fairness, hold on, hold on, hold on, don't turn on me yet. Don't turn on me yet. <laughs> Bless her, but she's been on like three, she's been in three different airports, she's been on layovers for like several days and she's got a coming down with a cold. But I also see her for the first time. Like someone put, new glasses on me and in that moment I was like I am definitely in love with my best friend and the second thing I'm thinking is am I in love with my best friend like how could this timeline check out so perfectly that I'm into her and she's into me and you know I'm just mind is exploding so we get in the car we're all giggly and I cannot really even look her in the eyeballs because I'm just like I got butterflies the size of pterodactyls here right so we're just kind of giggling and being like, this feels different, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I got to know. I got to know. So by the time we get back into the house, I turn around as we've gotten just into the, into the doorway. I turn around, I take her face in my hands, and I kiss her. And I get nothing back. <laughs> it's like kissing a mannequin. I am panicked. I am freaking out. I made all of this up in my mind. And I run like a child up the stairs. <laughs> but by the time I get to the top of the stairs, I hear, wait, 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 wait. I wasn't ready. <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. So I go back down. I kiss her again. This time she kisses me back, and we're making out on the couch. Ten seconds later, no more than ten seconds, I hear footsteps in the hallway. It's my mom. And she's like, girls, it's late. Go to bed. 
we're looking at each other like, all right. <laughs> so you would think that after that many years of tension and finally kind of figuring it out, it'd be like game on, right? Cause we're, but we're in my like childhood bedroom and I am still pretty terrified that I'm gonna lose my best friend. I still don't really believe that the odds are that I care for her and she cares for me. So that night I was like, I need you to sit over there on your hands, right? And I'm gonna be over here, like fighters to your corners. <laughs> and we're gonna figure this out. So that night we made the decision to date long distance and after a whole lot of time, we figured it, figured it out, started to date, and they say that you should marry your best friend, and that's what I ended up doing. Next, Elon Cameron goes to her first ever Pride event, the Dyke March in Chicago. First time I ever went to a Pride event, uh, I went to the Dyke March. If you're from Chicago or if you've lived in Chicago, you know about the Dyke March. It is the angry lesbian answer to the Budweiser-ridden Pride Parade on Sunday. It happens the day before, it usually rains, we're all angry. <laughs> but my first Dyke March I went to on a dare. My roommate, I called her the depressed teenager to all my friends, because she was. She was a depressed teenager, and I was 25, so at the time, that seemed like a thing. <laughs> she double-dared me to go. Like, I can't say no to a double-dare. I can now. I'm 46 years old. Screw you. But <laughs> at that time, I couldn't say no to a double-dare, so I went. In a park in uptown Chicago, women gathered queerer and queerer by the moment, stranger and stranger conglomerations of people in outfits and dress up and all kinds of things arrived. There was a drum line of 12 women doing five gallon drum buckets, <laughs> doing a drum line with five gallon plastic buckets. It was unbelievable. There were butch dykes in their jeans and t-shirts making the femmes swoon, and there were fiery femmes in their high drag wearing parasols and perfectly immaculate prom outfits. Coming from the North Woods, I didn't know how to flag as queer person because I didn't know how to be a queer person. I just figured if I dressed in a more masculine way, maybe eventually someone would hit on me and something would happen. But the problem was, I didn't know how to accept a compliment, so I never knew when someone was hitting on me, because I was like, oh, thanks, whatever. <laughs> Which is fine. <laughs> I had this experience of arriving at a place that was so much more home to me than anywhere I'd ever been before. I looked around and I saw all these faces, all these bodies that were everything, every part of the gender and queerness spectrum. Every person there represented their own universe, who they were there to proclaim as their own. And it was beautiful. And I was just like, oh, I underdressed. <laughs> The only thing I knew to do that was queer was dress in kind of like a more masculine way. So I wore like what I called my camping shorts that had a lot of pockets and a t-shirt. It was, it was and a polo shirt. And I wore a polo shirt to my first dyke march. 
I was trying to look queer. <laughs> you think I wake up like this? <laughs> the only person there I knew was the depressed teenager. I had seen some other people in performance things, but the only human who was anchoring me to this event was the depressed teenager, so I kept looking for her. And at one point, I saw her with some friends over in the sidelines, and she was putting electrical tape on her breasts. And I was like, that's weird. And so we're marching, and it's raining, and I'm not one to carry an umbrella, so I'm, we're all just getting soaking wet. We're marching along. And at this one point where we go into the underpass under Lakeshore Drive, it's just like a cacophony of noise. The drummers are going crazy. Women are chanting angry lesbian things that I wish I could remember. I'm sure they were amazing. And we all just started yelling, and we started yelling, and everyone was yelling, and we were like, Woo! Like, everyone. It was amazing. It was this moment of freedom like I'd never experienced before. And I look over at the depressed teenager and she's whipped her shirt off and all she has on is electric tape crossing her nipples. <laughs> and the rain's coming down and everyone's dancing and it's so crazy and wild and I'm swept up in the moment and I'm really not into public nudity at all. <laughs> so I'm like so free and this is amazing and I'm like ah. Ah, I can't put my eyes anywhere. <laughs> when we arrived at the lakeshore damp to Sodden, everyone was just hanging out, talking. They all knew each other in their toplessness. And I was so stunned that when the depressed teenager came over, she was like, take your shirt off. I was like, okay. It was horrible. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't handle it at all. But I did it. And it felt like a little bit of freedom. It felt like something like I'd done that I'd never wanted to do, but I thought was kind of cool that I did it. Because publicly I was taught that my body was a danger to me. That I could be in danger just by someone seeing my body. And there are so many people with so much more danger taught to them about their bodies. And I just want to say that I never thought about feeling proud, not once. But in that moment, I stood up a little taller and I prob promised myself that I would definitely wear a cuter bra to the next Dyke March. <laughs> In the next story, Laura Gornicki knows her first teaching job will be challenging, but she is not at all expecting the challenges to be related to her personal life. Thank you. My love affair with Northwestern Lower Michigan first began at the Timbers Girl Scout camp, just outside of Traverse City. It was a magical place that I discovered as a preteen and a teenager. It was in one of the most stunning areas of the country, and I spent several summers going on high adventure trips in the wilderness. I canoed and I backpacked, and I biked with strong and confident young women. My love affair intensified when I 
ventured from the middle of the mitten after my first year of college, and I came back up here in 1995 to be a summer camp counselor there. That was one of the best summers, perhaps the best summer of my entire life. The staff, almost entirely female, would don crazy wigs and tutus, and we'd dance on top of stone walls. We didn't need to wear matching clothes. Bras were completely optional. And I didn't feel an expectation um, that I should shave hair on any part of my body. It was wonderful. I took campers on trips, and I rode my bike from here to Mackinac City and back, loaded down with camping gear and food. We went backpacking, and I stayed up until dawn in the Porcupine Mountains, just hoping to catch a glimpse of the northern lights. I sailed sunfish boats around on Lake Michigan. It was surreal. But it wasn't just the natural beauty and the relative respite from societal pressures and this high adventure, um, the high adventure trips that made me love this area. It was in this area that I first kissed a woman. I'd never before even considered that an option. Despite my admiration of female camp counselors throughout the years, my obsession, <laughs> obsession, and I know there are many people who probably identify with this, my obsession with my coaches my entire time growing up. In adult hindsight, I can see it, but I couldn't see it then. I was more excited to hang out with my female friends in high school than my perfunctory boyfriends. There were lesbians at camp. There were so many of them. And I inextricably gravitated towards them. On weekends off, we would come into Traverse City, and this was back when you could just walk into a hotel room on the Grand Traverse Bay and get a room for the night for $58. Yeah, it's, it happened. And it happened a lot for us. We did it every weekend off, and 12 of us would pile with our sleeping bags um, secretly into the room we'd rented for four and we would play in the sunshine all day long and we would skinny dip in the bay at night. We also went to my first gay bar. <laughs> Who even knew that was a thing? I didn't and I had so much fun at sidetracks. Side <laughs> I still do on occasion. Not the same type of fun as when I was that age, but sidetracks, lesbians, girl kisses, hairy legs, this was so glorious. And this was a whole new world for me. I had a girlfriend that first summer at camp, and then I had different girlfriends the next two summers. We all dated each other, like, like sometimes young lesbians, old lesbians, <laughs> like sometimes lesbians do. And those, those summers, those summers at camp up here in northern Michigan served um, as a refuge for me as I struggled to conform to demands of a heteronormative society. The beginning of my love affair was marked with the safety, security, and freedom to be myself in this beautiful place on the sandy beaches and these clean waters, rolling hills. But then, the middle of my love affair was not nearly as free and was not nearly as glorious. There was one day I watched while teaching my second hour sophomore English class. 
as volleyballs rolled into my classroom. They tumbled in just as unruly as the students I was teaching. They were defaced with Sharpie messages. Gornicky eats twat. Go to hell, lesbian bitch. Fat dyke, spelled D-I-K-E. <laughs> It didn't matter how tightly I had attempted to keep the closet door shut, everyone knew. And this is how my teaching career began. My life experience in Northern Michigan was not centered around an empowering Girl Scout camp any longer. After graduating from college and spending the entire summer camping, I thought I should probably look for an actual job. And I saw an opening at a small Northern Michigan school district. It was the week before Labor Day. And then five days later, I was standing ill-prepared in front of a room of 25, 15, 16-year-olds. My first teaching job, and I was just 21. I'd handwritten diligently lesson plans into those old-fashioned lesson plan books, but we deviated from those lesson plans. Notes flew across the classroom. My students swore they ate candy and left them laying around. I would scurry between class periods to the office to run and make copies because of my poor planning or search for a cassette tape or a cassette uh, player. <laughs> my students slept in class. I had no idea how to manage their behavior. Mostly, I just attempted to assert my authority by screaming at them in front of the class, which um, wasn't, wasn't a good method. And this classroom chaos continued throughout the year. I would escape and I would come here. I would drive into Traverse City. It was about 45 minutes away. Sometimes I'd be here several days a week and I'd spend time with people and in places that validated me and helped me feel safe. I gave in to pressure and I did my best to conform with what was considered normal. I tried to keep my work and my personal lives independent of one another, but the community wouldn't let me do that. Apparently, I wasn't guarded enough. Students asked me about people they'd seen riding in my car. They knew where I lived. They'd seen the trucks. They'd seen the rainbow. We are Traverse City bumper stickers that some of you might remember. Their family members knew people in Traverse City who knew me. The students could not separate my private and my personal life, my private and my work lives, and I didn't demand that they do so. I just ignored their attempts to pry into my personal life, and I deflected inquiries. I just was not strong enough at the time to shut that shit down. So I'd sneak away from that small town and party into the night with the Traverse City lesbians, and then the harsh reality of mourning would hit, and I'd have to walk into the battlefield again. On the day of the volleyballs, I just watched them roll into my classroom, stunned in silence, trying hard to keep back the tears. The two perpetrators freely admitted they had done it. And when they spoke to the principal, they were smug. Those students did not have to replace those balls, game balls, $50 a piece. They did have to approach me in the hall and offer a verbal apology, which was half-hearted. I wasn't strong enough to fight that injustice, and how could I? Initially, when I reported the incident to school administration, they reminded me of the contract I had signed. They reminded me that I had agreed that my moral turpitude would align with that of the community. The homophobic comments were just obliterated with more Sharpies, more Sharpie, and those 
black and white patchy balls stayed in circulation. I coached volleyball and used those balls. After that incident and my attempt to get help from school administration, I realized that the lesbian parties, the rainbow stickers, were not the only parts of my life I needed to hide. I didn't say anything when my first brand new car, a sparkly purple Saturn, was defaced with baked on mustard messages. I left my classroom after working late, walked into the dim light of the parking lot and squinted to see Gornicky as a lesbian, Gornicky cunt liquor, bitch. And I went home and I just cleaned it off. And when a rock about the size of my fist went through the window of my rental home, I didn't do anything about that either. The only thing I need to, or excuse me, a message neatly bound around that rock with binder twine said that I was going to hell. I didn't know what to do besides just clean up the mess and call to have the window replaced. I stayed in that job for two very long years before I broke up with my beloved Northern Michigan. I had a new love. It was a woman I'd known for a month. <laughs> and in true stereotypical lesbian fashion, we packed up a U-Haul and we moved, we moved to Northern California. I just needed to get the F out of there. And Northern California was everything that I needed it to be at that time in my life. It was just in as inclusive as everything that I had heard. But you know sometimes when you have an ex and you break up because things are bad and then you find yourself still going back to your ex <laughs> because there's so much you love about them um, that you can't stay away even though some parts are hurtful. That's how I felt about Michigan. And I just stayed in Northern California a couple of years before I made my way back. I couldn't make my way back here full time. I ended up moving downstate, um, close to where I was from. Now I currently work for the Saginaw Intermediate School District and it is nothing like my old employer of the past. We actually have in our um, discrimination, non-discrimination policy, uh, we protect not only individuals for sexual orientation, but also gender identity. I can be my authentic self in the workplace without any fear of retribution. I like my job, I like my life. And also, my current job affords me the opportunity to come back here because I have circled back over and over again to this relationship, to this love with Northern Michigan. I come up here a lot on summers and breaks, and I'm glad I can because now I have more drawing me here than just the beautiful waters. My metaphorical love, this Northern Michigan, actually produced my, my real love, my forever love. I met her all those years ago during those dark days. Ironically, she helped me pack because she was living with the woman I'd met for <laughs> a month with whom I agreed to move to Northern California. That's, it's all a big web, isn't it? My 30 plus year relationship with this area of the state has been tumultuous. 
but it has come around full circle, and now I really do love it here. I've been able to reclaim it once again as one of my happy places. My fiance and I drove down Division four years ago on that beautiful day in June when we had just heard the Supreme Court verdict on marriage equality. We float down clean rivers, our inner tubes tied together, and we see all the lovely bumper stickers on cars in this parking lot all over town. We listen to live music, progressive musical artists. A lot has changed here over the years. I wouldn't previously have been on this hearsay stage looking out at this, at this kindness, at this support. I wouldn't have marched down Front Street with my fiance and my 16-year-old son waving a rainbow flag in June with thousands, thousands of people and unabashedly holding my partner's hand. I'm so happy to be in love with this place again. Traverse City has made progress and to a lesser extent outlying communities have made some progress as well. I do know that institutionalized homophobia is very real here, is very real everywhere. I still drop Michelle's hand when I'm outside of city limits. I still feel compelled to practice some of the guarded behavior I learned by necessity all those years ago. But change, albeit slow, has happened. And in an ironic twist, I may actually be loading up that U-Haul to come back to the place I fled from all those years ago. I am so happy this place has once again become a place of beauty and strength and refuge for me. And I thank all of you for being a part of that. In the last story, Arnie Sludelberg and Robert Crow together tell the story of how they met and all that it took to get to that moment. I was born in 1968, um, and I think there might be a, just a small handful of people here who remember that year as the year of revolutions. Um, it came at the end of the decade of sexual liberation, uh, when traditional male and female roles were being questioned, and uh, questions about uh, researchers and clinicians and theorists were all asking questions about sexual identity and gender and so on. All of this had entirely bypassed my family. <laughs> we, we might as well have still been living in the 1950s. Um, I was the third child in my family, born in a small town in southern central England to solidly middle-class parents. Uh, my dad was ordained as a minister in the Church of England, and my mom had given up a career of teaching to raise us children, uh, which was a decision she never regretted. Um, when I was born at home, the midwife handed me over and said, it's a girl. And at that point, nobody had any reason to suspect anything different, because genitals equal gender, right? Well, my first time that I had a suspicion that maybe something wasn't quite right came when I was around about two or three, and I was in the bath with my brother, and... Uh, 
looking at our bodies and feeling like mine didn't quite measure up in a certain aspect. And uh, I remember asking him when my body was going to change and grow to look like his. And my sister, who was in the bathroom with me, uh, with us at the time, she laughed and said, well, it's not going to, you're a girl. And I remember distinctly this feeling of anger that she would lie to me and say that I was a girl when, to me, I was so clearly a boy. But of course, as time went by, it turned out she was right and my body didn't change. Um, but I was still able to be pretty happy in those early years. I had friends amongst both boys and girls and a loving family. But I do remember a huge amount of yearning in my life. I would wish on anything, uh, four-leaf clovers, shooting stars, uh, birthday cake candles, that I would wake up a boy. That wishing dominated my thinking, and it was exacerbated whenever my sense of self clashed with other people's view of me, which happened often. Um, and it led to some fairly titanic battles with my parents over clothes. They were mostly okay with me wearing jeans and a t-shirt, but for church, I had to wear either a skirt or a dress. Um, joining the church choir saved me. I, in those days, the children would wear a long red robe right down to the ground and a white surplice and a collar. Um, the men wore the same but without the collar, and the women had a knee-length red gown. Um, and I was free to walk the half mile to school, by, uh, to church by myself. And so I would leave wearing my skirt or dress with my uh, trousers rolled up underneath. And then at the end of the drive, I would duck behind a bush and get rid of the clothes that I hated, roll them up, leave them in the bush, run all the way to church and quickly get into my choir robes and then I could feel totally comfortable and nobody was any the wiser. Um, so like I said, I had some pretty intense yearning going on, but I was still able to be pretty happy at that point. Reaching puberty was pretty much the end of happiness for me. When I was a younger child, I thought everyone around me was crazy for thinking that I was a girl, but now it became apparent that I was the one who was crazy for thinking that I was anything but a girl. The changes in my body caused me immense distress, and uh, it came at a time when I was also increasingly socially isolated. The boys wanted nothing to do with me because I was a girl and a not particularly attractive one with my short hair and rather scruffy demeanor. Um, and the girls wanted nothing to do with me because I was too much like a boy. Um, by my mid-teens, the problems in my wider life were echoed in the church. Uh, the choir director, quite understandably, wanted me to move into the women's section, and I steadfastly refused. I, it would have meant wearing the women's gowns, and it was something I just couldn't face. Um, I was still clinging desperately to the androgyny of childhood while all my peers moved into young adulthood. We eventually reached a compromise that was just about tolerable for both of us. Uh, I stayed in the children's robes, but I moved back into the adult pews, and I was supposed to sit with the women, but those pews were very often uh, full, so I would have to sit one row back with the men. And uh, after a while, I just sat with the men, whether there was room with the women or not, and the choir director grumbled occasionally, but we could just about live with that. So there I was as I turned 18 in June of 1986, 
uh, unable to sit comfortably in the choir with either the men, the women, or the children, and with an equal sense of discomfort in the rest of my life. I grew up in a really tiny town in southern Michigan called Hudson, a rural town of about 2,500 people. We were the only Jewish family by design. My parents were Holocaust survivors, my mother a hidden child in the attic of a farmhouse. My father had escaped the Netherlands with his parents and brother, made their way to rural, rural Michigan and chose this little town as a place to flee and to hide. They didn't know in those early years whether Hitler would uh, win or lose and if the Holocaust were to come to the United States. They wanted to make sure their names were not on any lists, any Jewish lists, and that no one would know that we were Jews. We had all of these pat answers uh, to questions that people might ask. My grandfather, when asked, uh, Meyer, what church do you go to? He would say, we go to all of the church suppers. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> When the Lutheran Church had their pancake and sausage supper, we, we were there. But both my sister and I were under strict instructions to never to share the fact that we were Jews with anyone. I remember when I was in rabbinic school, we were learning the laws of uh, the holiday of Hanukkah, and one of the traditions is to place the Hanukkah menorah the candles in the window of our homes for all to see, to proclaim the great miracle. And I had an immediate flashback to my childhood where my father would draw all of the heavy drapes closed before we would light our Hanukkah candles for fear that anyone might look in and see what we were doing. For my bar mitzvah, we finally, when I was in junior high, joined a synagogue in Jackson and I studied there, and uh, um, I remember the, the day of my bar mitzvah. It was a Friday night bar mitzvah, and I was in school on that Friday. And I remember distinctly the feeling of being so excited about what was going to be happening that night and not being able to share that with any of my friends. In high school, we started to become a little bit more open, but I realize now that when you live a life of hiding, it becomes a lifestyle. And from the earliest age, we were hiding a real important part of who we were. But when you do that for years and years and years, you become really good at it. And so when I had another secret, I was able to stay in the closet a lot longer than perhaps I uh, wish I, I had. Uh, on the other hand, the fact that I stayed in a number of years longer than, than, uh, than I wish, um, by the time I did come out, the rules of the game vis-a-vis -vis HIV and AIDS were well known. And I feel perhaps that I might be alive today because I was closeted as long as I was. I came out during the years of my seminary but had to stay closeted there as well because in those days we weren't sure whether or not a gay student could be ordained or would be accepted as the rabbi of a congregation. But soon after ordination, 
when I came here to Traverse City and also Detroit in the Detroit area, uh, we started to work on acceptance of LGBTQ folks in the seminary and beyond. And just a couple of years later, the seminary decided that out GLBTQ folks could be, be accepted into the program, be ordained, and ultimately serve congregations as rabbis. And of course that led uh, to many years, about three or four, of discussion about uh, gay marriage. And uh, our movement, the Reform Jewish Movement, uh, came out publicly in the mid-90s in saying that rabbis were permitted and encouraged to perform same-gender weddings. So uh, it was wonderful to be part of all of those really major decisions in the early years of, of my rabbinate. I was due to head off to teach a training college three months after my 18th birthday, and during that final summer, I made the decision that I would have to try and be what the world kept insisting I was. So I set off for the north of England with longer hair than I'd had since I was six, and a determination to give womanhood a try. It didn't go well. By the time I was 19 and a half, I'd attempted suicide, I'd been hospitalized for depression, and I was living in a sub substance misuse rehab. Around that time, I went back to the village where I'd grown up, and uh, totally out of character, because I was very withdrawn, I went to see somebody who I used to babysit for her children, and um, in the course of the evening, she knew I'd been having difficulties, and during the evening, she said to me, if there were one thing you could do that would make you feel better, what would it be? And I had never consciously had this thought before, but I just blurted out, I'd get rid of my breasts. And then sat in this stunned and horrified silence, wondering how on earth she was gonna react to this statement. And to her eternal credit, she just very quietly said, well, if that's what you wanted, then it could probably happen. You should go and see your doctor. So I went back to where I was living and went to see my psychiatric nurse and reported this conversation to him. And uh, his response was, I wondered when you were going to realize. <laughs> and uh, apparently he had thought when he very first met me that I was probably transgender. And he explained all this to me and said that he had wanted me to work it out for myself and didn't want to put the idea into my head. And little did he know that he was completely putting this idea into my head because I had no idea that there was a single other person in the world who felt anything at all like I did. You have to remember there was no internet in those days and no role models on television and no way for me to know that other people felt the same way. So I was referred to the gender identity clinic and accepted there for treatment and began treatment with the full and wonderful support of my family. Um, and within, within a very short time I had jumped firmly into the closet as someone who was transgender. I moved to another city, I lived as a man, worked in farming, and told nobody about my past. Um, I was still going to go into the hospital quite frequently for surgery, but I never told anyone the truth about why I was going. On the face of it, everything was sorted out now. I went back to university, I got a first class honors degree in teaching, 
Um, moved steadily up the career ladder to the being in the position of the equivalent of an assistant um, principal in an elementary school. I uh, got my master's, um, but all the time, the gap between who I knew myself to be and how the rest of the world, who the rest of the world thought I was, it just kept widening and I became more and more lonely, more and more anxious and depressed. Until by my mid-30s, I just couldn't work anymore. I was so depressed. And during the lengthy recovery, I made a decision to go to New Zealand. Um, it was a country that I, I'd always wanted to visit uh, for the spectacular scenery. Um, and I also felt like I was stuck in several areas of my life. And uh, particularly, um, I, I had not been on a date for years. Uh, I, spirituality and my career all felt like they were stuck. And so I was determined to go there and try and move forward in any of those areas that I could. Um, when I first got there, I had this feeling that I could just totally reinvent myself. I was completely on the other side of the world. So I had this temptation to tell people that I was a pilot or a deep sea diver or <laughs> something like that. But eventually I came to the realization that what I really wanted to do was to be me. And I finally found the right people and the right place to come out and tell them my past. And I found that the results from that were really good. Um, I formed really good, honest relationships, really deep relationships in a, in a very short amount of time. So that led me to start thinking, well, why have I never come out to anyone in Britain? And I'd always had all these solid, practical reasons about how if I told one person, then I'd have to tell everybody new who came into my life, and I'd end up being defined as being transgender. Um, but I started to realize that all of that had just been a smokescreen for the real reason, which was that I was ashamed of who I was. So in the um, return, returning back to the UK, I decided that I would sooner have more deeper, meaningful relationships with the people who could accept me the way I was than to maybe have more friendships but less meaningful ones. And in the summer of 2006, I stood in front of a group of about 40 of my mountaineering friends and told them my story. And every single one of them was completely accepting of me and are still my friends. I go back and see them at least twice a year and every one of them has stayed friends. So, <laughs> so a year later I went back for another five months in New Zealand because I still felt stuck in personal relationships and spirituality and so um, I went back to try and move forward in those areas. And through some pretty amazing experiences, I came to realize that a person's gender identity or gender expression or their sex assigned at birth is irrelevant for me at least in terms of attraction. What matters to me is the essence of a person. And in January of 2007, I was working at a guest house when Arnie came to stay. After 36 hours of travel, the, the last five of which driving on the wrong side of the road through mountains, 
I arrived at this incredible guest house in the middle of nowhere, right at dinner time. Uh, walked in and uh, was greeted immediately, and my eyes uh, fell on Robert. He sat next to me for dinner. We enjoyed the next uh, few days getting to know each other uh, a bit more. His van had broken down on the other side of South Island, and so we decided to travel together a circuitous route around the coast to get to his van. It took five days. <laughs> but when we got there, we decided to continue to travel together and ended up doing so for my entire stay in New Zealand. I'm fond of saying that our very first date lasted three weeks. <laughs> We'd really fallen in love with each other and uh, just a, a week after Robert returned to the UK, he came to the United States to visit me. And not long late after that, I went to uh, England to see what life was like for him. Initially, he came here on a tourist visa and then a student visa. Uh, after uh, having a master's degree, he was back at community college taking stained glass window making in order to qualify for the student visa. And then he was, and then he was hired by this amazing school in southern Michigan called Upland Hills School. Uh, and uh, he's... Oh. Sorry. <laughs> All through this period, I was learning more and more about Judaism and uh, falling in love with what I was discovering. Um, but it was still several years before I decided to convert. I think um, I mainly wanted to be sure I was making the decision for me and not because my partner was a rabbi. Um, but once I had converted, I was keen to share publicly my joy in becoming Jewish and an adult bar mitzvah seemed the natural way to do so. So in September of 2010, I stood before the congregation of Shir Tikvah in Troy with my parents and sister present, along with a number of uh, my colleagues from the school where I was working, and chanted Torah. Two years later, we decided to get married, but it was not yet legal in Michigan or in the United States. So we went to Windsor, Ontario uh, to, to get married. It was so amazing standing near the river in Windsor looking across at Detroit and seeing, you know, we could get married in Canada but not in our own home. But we had this, uh, uh, we, the week before the wedding we had to go to, to Windsor to pick up our, our marriage license. And uh, we went with a couple of friends from California, from Santa Cruz. And uh, uh, they came with us. And when we got to the Canadian side of the border, uh, they stopped us. I've been to Canada hundreds of times, never been stopped. This time we were. And uh, they looked, uh, they held us at the booth for the longest time, eventually shepherded us into a building and made us park. And, and uh, sit longer. Finally, they called up Eli to the counter, and when he came back, he shared with us why we'd been stopped. He had an arrest record. He had been arrested for civil disobedience demonstrating for the right to gay marriage in the United States. 
So here we were on our way to get a legal marriage license in Canada, being stopped because Eli had demonstrated for a right to do so. Our wedding in Windsor was in April, then in July we went to England in order to have a, a wedding ceremony for all of Robert's family and, and friends at his dad's farm for about 140 folks. And then in September we had a third wedding uh, at our home <laughs> for 450 of our nearest and dearest friends and relatives and congregants uh, on, uh, uh, on our property. And uh, it, was, uh, it was really, really, really beautiful. So we um, were in Arches National Park when the word came from the Supreme Court. We were in dire straits at this point because Robert uh, was on the second of his, uh, uh, of his work visa permits and we had only one year left and there was no hope of renewing it. So we were already starting to make plans to either live in England or somewhere in Europe, anywhere but the United States because he was going to have to leave and there was no recourse until that wonderful day at Na Arches National Park when we heard that our Canadian marriage would be recognized by the United States. Never in my mind could I have imagined that the Supreme Court of the United States would make a decision that would so directly impact my life in a visceral way, not only who I could be with, but where I could live. But that's what happened that day, and we are eternally grateful for the opportunity to stay here. So here we are in 2019. Um, we've been married for seven years now, and we're, as we had three weddings, we're now about to celebrate next month our 20th wedding anniversary. <laughs> we love our lives, and we love that there are communities of people who come together to hear the stories of our lives. Um, the homophobia I was surrounded by and internalized as a child and young adult were really, really strong in me when I met Arnie. Um, and living with an openly gay rabbi who is so clearly loved by his entire congregation uh, really helped, re helped me move more towards acceptance. Um, and whenever I get the chance to speak in front of a group of people like you who have come together to hear our stories, that also helps me shift my self-perception from shame to pride. So thank you. So as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, we are joined today by Elon Cameron and Johnny Cameron, founders of Up North Pride, and they have also brought Gertrude, who is one of my favorite, favorite dogs. It's our baby doggo. <laughs> I hear this isn't the first time you've had someone dog person type on hearsay. No, people are bringing their dogs to the recording lately, I and I am it. into it. <laughs> um, I mean, they have the dogs have not had much to say, so, you know, maybe... Yes. Yet. We can put a microphone in front of she, Gertrude's face and see what happens. She's very pretty verbal. Verbal. She's got things to say, Excellent. especially when food's involved. 
<laughs> or nail trimming. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming she's not Hers. a fan of. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the theme for this hearsay show was feels like the first time. And we ended up with stories about firsts, a couple first timers on stage and our first ever tandem story on the hearsay stage. The idea for this theme was to celebrate the many firsts that Up North Pride achieved in 2019. So can you tell us a little bit about what some of those firsts were? Sure. I mean, I think um, I think one of our first I I say this every year. Our first is, oh, my gosh, we had six thousand people this (laughs) year. I think like the numbers were a big it's every uh, year it's like year. oh my gosh there were 200 people that showed up the first <laughs> time so you know just even seeing how many people are attracted to what is now um a full like a week of programming but also monthly programs we and also a full community event something that that everyone comes to and i love that i love that we attract a full spectrum of people i think that that invests in our community resilience and it also builds relationships in an important way i see so much intergenerational dialogue around pride and that's such a blessing i mean so such a treat yeah and i i would also say that organizationally um you know when we started it was uh hey where are my people here we are to now where we've got we are a We've got a national uh, 501c3. We have bylaws. We're looking at like things that sound real adult to me, like <laughs> board development, a volunteer corps. We're, you know, we, we actually have a first is we've got a, a strong framework um, because of a, a lot of dedicated work by our volunteer, our board, our working board. Um, we, it was the first year, I think, where we were able to really receive volunteer support and implement um, events in a way that felt like, yeah, <laughs> I would like to capacity. say one other thing, though, that it was the first year that you and I didn't have to be at every event, <laughs> which was true. amazing. Like, I mean, I just a little shout out to Nick Viox here. We have so many people who are doing the heavy lifting of this organization to make sure that pride not only survives in Northern Michigan, but really thrives here. And I think that it's, it's just amazing to go to an event that you were part of the inception of and see its fruition, see so many people participating, see conversations happening that would not otherwise happen communications opening between family members just because they're there just because they're within this context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um it was the first time we had an instagram influencer <laughs> <laughs> i mean aside from you know our small potatoes uh attempts in a in in this market region but we had uh patagonia came um and was a joint effort with uh traverse city uh, tourism and the conventions bureau and so it's it feels really cool it's we are we have buy-in mm-hmm. we have buy-in from important community partners and from um from traverse city and how they want to what they see the power of this coalition that we have built on the tenets of love equality and dignity for all 
um, uh, and specifically for LGBTQ people who have often been kind of pushed off to the sides mm -hmm. and misunderstood. We have this respect at this time because of the fortitude, not only of this organization, but of this movement. It's, it's, it's time in our country, it's time in our world that we all be present and aware and accountable for our community members. And I think that that's something that people are more open to now in some ways than ever before. So Hearsay and Up North Pride are about the same age. We're in our seventh season, and 2020 will be the seventh Pride celebration. We're like fraternal twins, kind of, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, what was the very first Pride like? It was really full of hope and promise and a lot of ideas, um, a lot of things that we could do moving forward. And I think a lot of ways there were people there who are still part of the organization, um, like hearsay, and I think sort of like hearsay's inception, um, hearsay was one of the first places that was really a safe place to be queer. Um, I told a story at the first hearsay about my first real queer relationship, and it wasn't anything that I was nervous about sharing because of the content. Mm-hmm. And that was new for me in a lot of ways up here. Like I was very accustomed to that in Chicago, <laughs> but up here it was sort of like, okay, even though this is my hometown in a lot of ways, a place that I feel very much aware of and connected to, um, I haven't always felt safe here. And so that was a really powerful thing to have the first hearsay be a place where I could tell this queer love story and the first pride that happened in many ways was a place where so many people, the people who came, were so happy that it was happening. And each of them brought their stories to us. Um, from the people who lived out in far outlying areas who traveled an hour or more to come to the one event that we had at the Little Fleet. Um, to people who were like, what's going to happen next? You know, there was a lot of excitement and momentum behind that initial movement that created the wave it is now. And I think that our, I mean, was it year two when we, it was mm -hmm. year two that we had hearsay as an official part of our program, y'all were, it was our first um, other way of reaching out and kind of going deeper and being able to share stories related to being LGBTQ in Northern Michigan. And that was, um, it's continued all these years. And I, it, it's, it, it's a, it's my, one of my favorite parts of our pride programming every year. It's that we put it at the beginning of the week so that it, it really, it sets a tone. It allows us to go deep into other people's experiences. I know that, um, you know, queer and ally alike, it's, it's something that, uh, we, take those stories with us as we um, continue to create new stories throughout each each Pride Week that we do. Mm -hmm. It's funny, the uh, the venue at that particular show, um, uh, they were going off of the Facebook responses 
as to how big they thought it was going to be. And uh-huh. I kept saying, no, sto- people really love storytelling <laughs> and they will be here. And they thought that there was going to be 15 people because only 15 people said they were oh my going. Gosh. <laughs> I think we had 100. At least. Yeah, we that room was packed. packed. Yeah. And people, it took like 20 minutes to get a drink just because they weren't ready for they us. They were not at all prepared. <laughs> they were like, wait, what? <laughs> people listen to storytelling shows? <laughs> right. Weird. It's, it really has <laughs> Newsflash. <been. laughs> and truly with I on it with with hearsay again and again with our other events, we give I like the flexibility of like just we give a try to these programs and we're like, maybe this is another inter- interdisciplinary kind of arts program that we can do on a different night of the weekend. Mm-hmm. And people show up. I mean, we are just constantly surprised. We are constantly hitting capacity and having to look for new venues. And I mean, I what a testament! That... What a testament to what our community has been hungry for for so long. I mean, we're just facilitators with other very talented facilitators doing events. Mm-hmm. Uh, to... Absolutely, and I think that that's reflected in our monthly programming as well as what happens in June, which is so great this time of year. <laughs> Just like in the off season, whenever that may be. Right. <laughs> um, it's so great to have the, that's something that's new for us, for sure. Not to jump to the next question. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that is. It's like, shut up, shut up, shut up. No, that's cool. We can, I mean, we're already tiptoeing in that direction. Um, I was going to ask, like, how has, it has changed considerably since its inaugural year. Um, you're talking about all the different um, events that you um do during that week i mean i it's so funny because i'll say i'll basically identify like oh that's my favorite pride event (laughs) that's my favorite pride event and it's like all of them (laughs) yeah the norte bike ride into the sign party i mean the energy is it's so cool to see the crossovers Mm -hmm. of yeah our different parts of communities (laughs) how we want to participate and the um the uh the drag show was new a couple years ago yeah the drag show was new year one and we were like that'd be cool if like four or five hundred people show up that'd be <laughs> a success we're gonna do but this on one, a friday mean... night i meant year one and we had like 2500 people show up and mm-hmm. we were just like oh my gosh <laughs> you know we were so packed in that you know last year we were able to respond as we always do and try to make things um we have a better vantage point we try to make it a little more accessible for people to to see the drag show and we have been able to bring in like rupaul drag race you know talent Talent. we've been bringing in national and international talent Mm -hmm. having Um, manila lose on here was such a feather in our bonnet like it was just such a delight to have her her energy her vivaciousness her dedication to reaching out to lgbtq plus kids mm-hmm. i mean it was just such an inspiration and to see her interacting with everyone she was so great with the kids and so last special. year was peppermint and right and then peppermint was so incredible her performances were like top notch and I think people people thought like, oh, we'll go to the drag show. It'll be fun. And so many people were amazed at the quality of like what was happening there, mm-hmm. including our local and Michigan-based drag performers. It was really a delight. 
And we definitely had more than 2,500 people there. So how many people The second did they go say? around, I don't know, but what I know is um, we are. I think they said it was almost, it was like almost double what they had the year before. Wow. Um, the bartenders were like, okay, we literally can't do this anymore. We love our friends. That was our one of our founding venues that we've always, you know, you know, the little fleet at the very to... beginning when we reached out to them and said, we want to do a pride event. Gary and Alice and Jonas said, okay, every week. Yeah, we do that every week. <laughs> and, and it's like, just like... But don't grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that is... I mean, I that's think... one of the things that's been a challenge for us through, as an organization as we've expanded is, you know, finding the right venue. And that that is an exciting point of this coming year's events. Next year's Pride, we're going to have a lot of um, space to do the yes. things that we've been doing under a more constricted, uh, shall we say, big top. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. We're excited. I wish I meant we were going to have like a traveling circus, but that's not <laughs> happening yet. I think. <laughs> Listen you know, to my dreams, yeah. people. <laughs> What's been cool is that every, that our, our venue partners over, you know, over the years have seen some of their, or their busiest bar nights, if it's mm -hmm. a bar of the year. Oh, hearsay was packed last yeah. year. Workshop, <laughs> rare the, birth, the, our tea block totalers. party. For, mm -hmm. it's, yep. We just, um, it's cool. The parlor. I mean, every place that has. And it's a ride. We're just kind of like, wow. <laughs> We're like, well, we knew we'd have a bunch of people, but we didn't know we'd have this. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yeah. How did you feel about that dunk tank? We, I am. How did I feel? We had a. How dunk was that dunk tank? Yes, la here's an answer for one I don't, of the first. I don't mean to be rude, but like, how did you feel about that dunk tank, Johnny? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> last year was the first time that we had a carnival mm -hmm. included in our programming. It's for the children, the, it was for the it's for the LGBTs group. Uh, we've so got great. a wonderful group of young people that are organized and meet through. Uh, the Polestar Community Center. Um, and what we did was we found carnival rides, a rock climbing, climbing wall that people really loved, a dunk tank that certain people really loved, especially. The only, thing, the only issue with the dunk tank was that we didn't think ahead about how to fill it. And so the only way to fill it was to use water from a fire hydrant, which is at... Even in the middle of June, it's groundwater. And because we had a particularly cool spring, it was 50 degree groundwater. So <gasps> oh, Johnny is like, yeah. <laughs> Johnny's literally like, I will do anything for these youth, including have... <laughs> my own personal peril. I have always wanted to do a dunk tank. <laughs> But you kind of imagined it would uh, be I warm, wouldn't think, you? <laughs> I think the first this year is that it's going to be filled up ahead of time. <laughs> and left in the sun all day. That, that was, was a little level. hypothermic, but I was able to swim in the no, bay. Their lips yeah. were legit October. purple. Oh, yeah. No, no, your I, lips were legit purple. I was there. I I, yeah. you, you were trying to taunt me. <laughs> so I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Who wants to get in here? No, no. To, uh, I, to throw the thing. Oh, right. And yeah. But I was, I was like, I didn't want to do that because you I was just berating your so favorite cold. baseball team. Yes, you, you were. Trying I was. To they were it. talking shit about the Whoa, Cubs. They were <laughs> stoking. 
that's just dedication to the job. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I, I, I did not go home with hurt feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but I did feel like once a person dunked you, they shouldn't have gotten the next two throws because you would just go down. There were some good arms. There were some. Good yes, that's the thing arms. I would have missed, and and so. As much as some people might enjoy watching their spouse go through that, like I couldn't watch. It was right. stressful for me. I was like, oh, it's so cold in there. HSP, HSP. Yes. You're gonna need some matzo ball soup after this. Oh, thank you both for joining me today and thank, thank you, you so for much, Karen. thank Always you for bringing Gertrude <laughs> when you leave you can leave her <laughs> just kidding all right thanks thank you thank you hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City Michigan you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, our event sponsor, Red Spire Brunch House, and our MC for the evening, Elon Cameron. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. <laughs>